And that's what we really have to concentrate on is, you know, making sure that we're raising all boats, right? Because if we're not taking the time to improve security across the board, then the attackers are going to be able to gain a foothold and win. And we just don't need that. But the research that we did completely proves otherwise. This is an opportunity to serve the public. And there are a lot of really good, hardworking, intelligent, highly motivated people who work in the industry. Why should they put up with what they put up with when they can go make the exact same money by pouring coffee? Well, that's a great question. So really, I think the core thing is we need to care more. Uh, I've been using the term relational security. On a wider scale, are we really thinking about the people around us, the relationships we have with each other, caring enough to ask questions, to identify things or trigger points before they become something far bigger than they needed to be. All that and much, much, much more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Dave Lewis is a Global Advisory Chief Information Security Officer for Cisco and Duo Security. Mr. Dave, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you very much for having me. Today's topic is biometrics and access control. Then we're gonna talk about the annual trusted access control report by Duo Security. I started looking at biometrics maybe eight or nine years ago when I started doing my my podcast at trade shows. And I said, well, that's a novel little thing. What are you gonna do with that? Oh, you know, we're gonna do fingerprints, maybe eye recognition. I said, oh, wow, sci-fi is here, right? It's finally here. But there was a big push initially and people weren't happy with it. They thought they were actually scanning your fingerprint, they didn't know it's an algorithm and so on. Where are we today with biometrics and the consumer? Are people, Biden to this, has it arrived? Uh, you know what I would say? It's safe to say that, yes, we are at that pivot point where people are realizing the value-add proposition of being able to do this. I mean, I remember back in the 90s working for a defense contractor in the D.C. area and looking at solutions back then, and one group came in who will remain nameless, and they tried to present their retina scanner as an example. And they said, oh, this is, you know, nobody could defeat this. And I was smiling, and my boss looks over at me and goes, you figured out how to break it. And I said, yep. I just need a knife. <laughs> and they were so shocked. But that's the problem is a lot of these solutions that come out in whatever field it happens to be don't always have the mind of somebody who thinks of the negative bent, right? You have to look at these things as you know, what could possibly go wrong and understand the risks that are involved with it. Now, as we've moved forward in time, we've looked at you know biometrics and you know, authentication has gotten to a place now where it makes a lot more sense. It's a lot more coherent and effective as well. So I think, yes, we've definitely gotten to that pivot point. Well, multi-factor authentication is thrown around all the time. Something you have, something you know, et cetera. We're kind of moving away from the, the text multi-factor authentication, right? Because that, that's vulnerable and people have proven that. But biometrics are much more resilient, aren't they? If you're, if you're talking about multi-factor authentication. Absolutely. I mean, for example, if you have a fruit-based phone and you have, you know, you're doing a facial scan there or the older ones where you're doing a fingerprint scan, that data was actually stored in a secure enclave on the device. So that was never transmitted across. A hash of it was sent. So there was at no point was this data being collected by third parties uh, beyond your own personal device. So I think people are finally waking up to the realization that this is actually a viable option for them to do authentication because, you know, the good old password really has run its course. You know, it was a reactive solution or a reactionary solution rather back in 1962 at MIT in order to stop students from stealing uh, high-end compute time from each other. You know, the professor at that time implemented that 
And unfortunately, this has become a quote unquote security control since then. And it has about as much security efficacy as a house key, right? So when you leave and to go to work in the, in the morning or wherever it happens you have to go, you will lock your door and on your way. So for example, if you have kids and you know they're going to be home early, you might stick the key in the plastic rock in the garden, under the doormat or in the mailbox. The problem is, is people of a negative bent, you know, the attackers will know this. They will know to look for it. And then they can gain access, access rather into your house. And it doesn't mean that the person coming through the front door is the one that's supposed to be there. But by virtue of the fact they have the key or in a digital sense, the password, they can then gain access. And this is a real problem. It has, it shows the limited uh, viability of a solution like this. So that's why things like biometrics and multi-factor authentication are a better way to do things and fundamentally getting to a point further down the road where we can talk about a passwordless strategy overall. Well, it's so true. I, I remember at Black Hat one year, I asked one of the, the big brains over there, uh, you know, what fascinates you? And he goes, I'm amazed that the internet works at all because it was built strictly on trust. <laughs> and then they decided to put a password in later, right? No security initially. And it's so true. Uh, passwords are uh, way past their, their usage, no doubt about it. Now, how is this sitting with consumers? Let's talk about a little bit of information in your report. Uh, have biometrics jumped up in usage this la last year or last couple of years uh, based on your report information? Yeah, it has been trending year over year. And in the past year alone, with the data from our own uh, customers, we found that the usage of uh, Duo for multi-factor authentication has risen 39% year over year. And that there is also a five-fold increase in the use of WebAuthn. Now, for folks that may not know what that is, WebAuthn is from an open standard that was published by the W3C that allows for basically the groundwork for a passwordless uh, solution to be implemented uh, for any web-facing properties. And I have to be very specific about that. That doesn't do anything for legacy on-prem at this point, but you know, it is a great step forward for web-delivered uh, type of content uh, on SaaS-based offerings. So it, it's really great to see that it is rising, especially with the WebAuthn usage, because it shows that we are definitely making that evolutionary step from doing passwords to doing password managers to doing multi-factor authentication. And then fundamentally, we will get to that uh, passwordless implementation where you are giving the end users uh, the ability to authenticate in a seamless fashion. The security is still there, but to the end user, they don't have to worry about you know storing X number of hundreds of passwords. In my own password manager, as an example, I have over a thousand sets of credentials, and there's no way I would be able to physically remember all of those. Um, and it just, we, we do have to get to a better place and we have to figure out how we can democratize security for the end user so that they can concentrate on their core competencies, right? They don't want to worry about storing passwords. They don't want to worry about, you know, password one, password two, and all that sort of nonsense. Um, they want to be able to get their job done. They want to focus on what they're good at. If they're in finance or HR, it doesn't matter which, uh, as just a couple of examples, those folks tend not to be security uh, adept, right? They, they know that, what they're good at and they want to be able to gain access to that. So we as security practitioners rather have to facilitate that in a way that is going to make it as seamless as possible for them to get their jobs done safely and securely. Now you used the word seamless in your last statement there twice, by the way. So I'm going to call you out on it. Uh, I didn't you know, do that. It's like, you know, back in the day when uh, people were talking about, Oh, we, uh, we catch bad guys on the internet in real time. Well, real time at two or three days, right? Now real time is real time. <laughs> How seamless is seamless, Dave? Let's be honest about that. 
Well, the, the idea here is you would be authenticating to your device, either using facial scan or fingerprint scan or whatever it happens to be the implementation for your particular organization, then that would hand off to the passwordless software, which would do the authentication transparent to the user. So if you have things that are predefined within your company that say you need this, this, and this in order to get your job done, then the authentication is handled in the background unbeknownst to the user. So you authenticate that one time with your system, and then you log into all your requisite systems that you need in order to get your job done. And how that's implemented, obviously, is a risk-based discussion for each organization. There's no such thing as one size fits all. But having the ability to you know, do that in a way that makes it easier for the end user to get their jobs done, um, you, you need the seamless, right? You don't want to have tools written by engineers for engineers given to folks that are essentially Luddites, right? We need to make it as easy as possible for them because there's a tired, deprecated notion of you know, vilifying the users for doing things wrong. Right. We get all up in arms about, you know, they use a password that was easy to guess. Well, right. But did we give them an option that would how we can do it better? Did we show them? Did we train them? You know, we have to go through this list and we have to, as security practitioners, figure out how to fall on our sword in a way that's actually productive. Right. We can't just say, oh, you know, throw up our hands and move on. We have to do a better job because each time we train a group of folks within our organization, we have to realize that six months to a year later, we're going to have a whole new intake of staff. There is turnover with any organization and you have to do it all again. So it's an iterative process. Uh, how many phones do you think are using biometrics nowadays? Did your report find any data on that? Is it like 50% of the people have it on their phone now or what? Uh, yeah, we had about 36 million devices that we were able to pull data from. Now, to be clear that that is from a dual security specific customer base. Um, and then once you go beyond that to the wider audience out there, you have other folks that are definitely using uh, some sort of solution to get there. And that's what we really have to concentrate on is, you know, making sure that we're raising all boats, right? Because if we're not taking the time to improve security across the board, then the attackers are going to be able to gain a foothold and win. And we just don't need that. We don't need to make their job any easier than it already is. So I'm really glad to hear this is coming mm -hmm. along. What do you think is the best biometric? Uh, fingerprints are fairly easy, technically. You know, people aren't going to scan the retinas yet. That's a James Bond thing still, except in business. What are what other biometrics might we see coming uh, on the horizon? Uh, you know what? I think facial scanning is definitely uh, the way to go. Uh, you know, early iterations of it in various platforms were very simple to defeat using a photograph. Um, but the technology has advanced leaps and bounds since those devices first came out. And we're now seeing that it's far more difficult to defeat it. Um, you know, my daughter was able to use a picture of me to defeat an earlier version of uh, one of my phones, um, but it doesn't work anymore. She tried it very recently and it just flat out didn't work at all. So I think that that is definitely a good way to go and using that to authenticate to your vice and then using what's called passwordless uh, technology as an example, like WebAuthn I was talking about earlier, to authenticate to all of your servers that you need to, or systems rather, that you need to in order to get things done seamless to you. So you just log in once with your face and you're on your way. Um, I think is definitely a smoother way to do things. Obviously, there will be new technologies that come down the pipe. Um, you know, I, I'm very fortunate that in my advanced age, I'm now going back to do my graduate program and seeing all the potential technologies that are coming down the line, like homomorphic encryption and LIDAR and all these wonderful things. Um, I think that, yes, we will see something new in the on the horizon. But until we get to that point, I think moving people away from static usernames and passwords to multi-factor authentication with an eye towards 
pivoting to passwordless further down the road when it makes more sense for an organization to do so or jumping into it now if they have the wherewithal to do so. Um, I think that these are achievable goals. Right. And the thing is, anytime you're talking about security with an organization, you want to make sure you're talking about their outcomes. What is it they're trying to achieve as an organization? We don't want to dictate to them, you know, here's the box with the blinky lights. Have a nice day. That is going to do nothing to improve the matter for a relationship between vendor and customer. It's not going to improve security. You want to make sure you're building a trusted advisor relationship and being able to provide them with technologies that are going to improve their lives overall uh, from a security perspective, I think is definitely a, a noble mission for any organization. Dave Lewis, Global Advisory CISO at Cisco Security. Mr. Dave, well said, my friend. I, I gotta tell you, you know, I've done about 2,400 of these interviews and this is one of the more balanced. You really have a very balanced view between the consumer, the engineers, the developers, the business model, and that's where we need to be to make this succeed. So bravo to you guys. Uh, very good job, my friend. Thank you for that. I actually used to do radio back in the 90s, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's even better. Thanks so much for coming on Screen Imagine Highlights. Appreciate it. Dr. Glenn Kitteringham, CPP, is a security consultant, educator, and research criminologist. He's the president of Kitteringham Security Group, Inc., and a former senior regional vice president for ASIS International. Mr. Glenn, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you very much. Today we're going to talk about the effectiveness of security research and how security practitioners may or may not use that data. And I think they should, actually. The question is, if we use security research, can we increase that bottom line and retain our employees? Tell us about this. Really fascinating work. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think that the biggest problem that we've had within the security industry to date is that far too many contract providers have relied on what I call a flow through model where they're just they're They've always assumed that for it's, it's almost backwards, but for every guard or officer, depending on your point of view and what you think about those words, but for every, every security person, um, leaving, they've always relied on the fact that there's somebody else walking in the front door and employee retention's never been a big deal. And it is now because of the pandemic, particularly, and, um, a lot of, a lot of guard companies and in-house departments are they're pardon the pun, but they're caught off guard and they don't know how to deal with this. And I mean, I've been uh, preaching for years that the industry has to get its turnover under control. They, they have to, it's, it's a killer. It costs so much money. We know that employee turnover, I don't care what industry you're in, but we know that turnover uh, costs an exorbitant amount of money to organizations and the statistics run from anywhere from, you know, a hundred percent of the, of the employees annual salary to 250% of their, to replace that, that employee. And I just think about all the money that's just walking out the door and, and, you know, this issue, as far as I'm concerned, has been ignored for far too long. And well, I, the pandemic has thrust it to the forefront. I read somewhere that the availability of employees is only up to like 96%. So no matter what you do to fill your company's uh, unemployment, you're only going to get to 96% of it. It's greater than 96%. I mean, I've got clients or, uh, like I know security managers are short staffed, like, like they're sitting at 70%. 
Wow. You know, it's, it's, and they just can't, um, they're so short staffed right now. And then, you know, people are having to work overtime and then they're getting burnt out on overtime and things aren't getting done. And so I think it's far more than the 96% uh, or far less, I guess. Um, it's worse. It's worse. Let's put it that way. And yeah, uh, there are some, there, there are some companies out there who are working hard to, to attract and retain individuals, but it really comes down to, well, a couple of different factors and multiple factors, which we can talk about. So what are some of the things that guards are concerned with these days that, that contributes to uh, retention? Now, I think some of these problems have been around a long time for the same reasons. I think COVID's thrown a new monkey wrench into this. Why do I want to be a guard? Have all the same problems we've had with guards for 50 years. I'll go be, go be a barista or work at McDonald's for $14 an hour. There's a, there's a concept that's starting to make its way into the business. It's been making its way into the business world for about a decade now, but I'm starting to see it come out into the literature around security officers, but it, the concept of organizational justice. And that's fundamentally about being treated fairly. And everybody wants to be treated fairly. I mean, I don't know anybody who wants to be treated unfairly, but th- that really, I think, has been a long ignored area that that security personnel want to be treated fairly by the people that they're dealing with, by their employer and by their clients and by their supervisors. And uh, I am reading about other, I am reading other research that also is talking about the exact same concepts around organizational justice and around, and like how important the role of the supervisor is in supporting their, their frontline staff when it comes to employee retention. And it's been absolutely, in my experience, uh, I mean, I, I believe that research and I've been, I'm actually working with some clients to, to provide additional training to the supervisors to bring them up to a higher degree of like soft skills development, you know, like negotiation skills and emotional intelligence and leadership and, and being fair and, and understanding how important their role is. Yes, it's organizational fairness, but it's fair salaries. It's, it's, it's decent working conditions. It's not being basically, for lack of a better term, stabbed in the back by your own employer when your client or the, this was something about the Brazil research was that, that a lot of the security officers identified that when they were asked by the, by the client to either violate, you know, either bank rules or company rules, to um at the request of a client and then they weren't supported by the you know by their own employer they, they were really frustrated and i'll tell you as a as a former security officer years ago i've had i had that happen to me and i still remember those points where we were asked to not follow the rules because uh, you know a customer was upset about something so we were told to use our common sense but you know, we were also told to violate our own, the organization's own call policies and procedures. And then we were told to just figure it out on our own. And people remember that. And more and more people are recognizing they don't need to put up with this stuff. And, and that's why they're quitting in droves. And if companies don't get on board and start fully supporting their employees, this is just going to get worse uh, before it gets better. This isn't a problem where you're just going to throw money at it and fix it. No, for, for sure. And culture is huge. Absolutely. It's a, it's a very important component of any organization. And to be perfectly honest, actually, once you start to pay decent salaries and the higher the salaries go, um, 
let me, there's kind of a reverse, if I can say this properly, a reverse problem here is that the lack of adequate salaries simply, in my opinion, simply hides other problems. But once an organization starts to, you know, the salaries start to go up and people become less concerned at, you know, about the wolf at the door, so to speak, and that they're barely making enough money to scrape by, they can start concentrating on other things. And if you, if you have high, it's my opinion, if you have high salaries at a toxic work environment, then people are going to move on anyway, because it's become obvious that, that it's toxic and that there are problems there. And that the, the, you know, what I said is previously the low salaries had kept all that stuff hidden because the, you know, this, the staff receiving those low salaries could only focus on the, on the low pay. And I also think that on this note that it's, I think it's high time that the, the security industry starts to embrace metrics on all kinds of levels, what their annual turnover is, what the cost of an like what the cost of a per officer turnover is. And like, there's probably a dozen metrics that, you know, give me five minutes and I could come up with, they got to start, they got to get better at measuring productivity. They got to figure out how many, you know, like how often is, you know, are there no fail shifts and how much is there unscheduled overtime? And, you know, what does it cost, you know, to, unif like to get somebody in the front door from the time you, in the entire recruiting process to when you, when you get that individual officer out to a site, what's that, what's that costing? And I think that using those metrics, the, the, the provider can go back to the client to say, look, we know we've got the data. We know that if we don't have a, if we don't have a, a properly trained uh, employee, this is what it's going to cost you in the long run. And if you want to go with the bottom feeding contract guard company, then be my guest. The researchers in that Brazil research identified that because of the strict requirements in Brazil, um, that. Uh, if I remember correctly, and I'm, I mean, I'm reciting this from memory, so I may have my stats a little bit wrong, but they figured that it was a three to one ratio. So for every licensed security officer in Brazil, there was three unlicensed officers. And, and that certainly was driving the price down. You know, they had passed a number of pieces of legislation federally over about a decade period to in, in to increase the quality in the, of this, of the security industry. Um, at, but as, as you, as you can well imagine, the more legislation that's in place, the higher the costs are, and so that drives those costs up. And then that actually creates a niche market for the unlicensed, unregulated security personnel. And that, you know, in turn, the customers who, you know, don't want to pay for the legitimate licensed security companies are going out and buying those companies or hiring those, you know, those unlicensed companies. And so it does create a bit of a vicious cycle. And part of the problem was that there was, just as you said, like there's no enforcement, you know, so the government is creating this legislation, but they're not, they're not doing anything about it. I am so happy you've done this research and I like you ringing this bell about it because if we don't pay attention to this, we're going to find ourselves in a crisis we cannot fix. No doubt about it. I agree with you. And uh, I mean, you know, going back to the, the importance of research, that's what, that's what various pieces that's what various researchers from all over the world are pointing now and it's it's interesting there is a fair amount of research that is being done about security officers on, from a variety of perspectives and um, i just came across a new one last week that talked about um 
there were similar themes, but employee retention as it pertained to security officers who experienced workplace violence. And, but the theme in there was the exact same thing, which was how well were they supported by their employer? And so there's going to have to be a shifting of priorities somehow. And, you know, I think one of the, one of the ways things are going to shift is there's probably going to be even a greater reliance on technology. And I'm not saying that's the right response because I'm already seeing that there's far too much reliance on technology right now, way too much reliance. And, and I'm not a technophobe or anything, but to me, technology is grossly overrated. Um, you need good people who are properly trained, who know how to operate machinery and how to operate this technology and get the most out of it. And as a, as a security consultant, I'm seeing way too many clients make these technology purchases that are just being completely wasted because they're not taking into account the, the human side of all of this stuff. And so, which takes us right back full circle to, to proper training, proper leadership, um, but proper salaries and, like the research that, that, you know, that I just completed that working with perpetuity consulting on behalf of the international foundation for protection officers, you know, we, we did a, we surveyed and got responses from over 10,000 security personnel and, and we followed up with face-to-face -face interviews. But one of the questions we asked everybody is why do you work in the security industry? And it was something like 65% said it was a chance to serve the community. Well, that's no different than law enforcement or other government services. And yet that aspect is often denigrated and looked down and, and sneered at because so many people look at security as simply, well, you just, you know, you just, you're like you're a mercenary. You just work for somebody paying the bills and, and, you know, and you don't care about anybody else. But the research that we did completely proves otherwise. This is an opportunity to serve the public. And there are a lot of really good, hardworking, intelligent, highly motivated people who work in the industry. Why should they put up with what they put up with when they can go make the exact same money by pouring coffee? So the stuff is like the stuff is all connected, right? I mean, I'm a big believer in a theory that everything is connected to everything else. And when I see these various pieces of research being done from in various parts of the world on, on, um, uh, different aspects of the security, uh, you know, environment and looking at security officers, but I'm also reading research and human resources and business management like this, this, the stuff's all connected and the, you know, the soft skills and, and the requirement for soft skills and the requirement for leaders, good leaders and the requirement for, for good training. It doesn't matter if you're a rocket scientist or a security officer or a barista or a brain surgeon like you need those competencies you might need them in different degrees but you need all those competencies to be effective mr glenn as you said earlier we've come full circle and this is proof of concept we've come right back to training and retention as the two key elements to run a successful guard company there's no doubt about it and a successful industry because the industry in a whole is being impacted severely right now thank you so much for coming on security management highlights my friend and good luck to your future research we need more people like you in the industry ringing the bell and, and warning people about this. It's a serious issue. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Paul Wood is the Managing Director of Emerging Risks Global, United Kingdom, and a member of the ASIS CSO Technical Community. Mr. Paul Wood, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you, Chuck, and thank you for the invitation. We're going to have a really interesting conversation about your article, Turning Bad Apples Good, 
using soft skills for threat assessment. Define that for us so people understand where we're focusing. So the past years, we've all been focused on thinking about insider risks, different guises they can take, how we can manage that threat vector, and how we can best protect ourselves against threats from inside. But actually, I think often we overlook that that threat vector isn't always malicious. Sometimes people really want to do good, but make mistakes that can cause a lot of damage. And so what we're trying to do is to identify not only those risks of people in terms of their training awareness, perhaps you know their motivation levels, we're trying to encourage people to care more, to make better decisions. And that's going to help for us to mitigate not only those that have the right intentions but make poor decisions, but also it's going to encourage our workforce to keep their eyes open, to be aware, and to identify those potentially really bad apples that are amongst us that want to do us harm. So we're really talking about kind of reintroducing or introducing empathy into our workforce, right, in our security workforce. Because, you know, security, law enforcement, military tends to be take that hell, let's go get them, boys, and, you know, really tough kind of attitude towards things. And a lot of times, we, we to your point, we do overlook a mistake in our field that's not malicious, but actually causes more damage than some of the threat actors. Give me some ideas on how we start looking at employees a little differently. What, what's our new lens we're focusing Oh, that's a great question. So really, I think the core thing is we need to care more. Uh, I've been using the term relational security. On a wider scale, are we really thinking about the people around us, the relationships we have with each other, caring enough to ask questions, to identify things or trigger points before they become something far bigger than they needed to be? And we can ask some reflective questions in that space, the who's, what's, where, when, how and why. You know, who is this person we're looking at? Is this normal for this person? You know, what is it that they're actually doing? And how could those behaviors of that person next to me, who nine times out of 10 could be a really effective and approachable person, something might have changed that we're not aware of. And I think it's about encouraging all of our workforce, not just security practitioners, to take the time, take a step back, to observe and to look at the environment they're in, to think, okay, what's going on here? And what can I do to, to make this, you know, more effective or a safer place to work? So I worked for three police agencies uh, in the first part of my career. And I will say what you're discussing is inherent in a high-performing team. And of the three departments, one had exactly what you're speaking about. There was this caring for your partners and this engagement with your partners. And that police department and that team, uh, it was Culver City, by the way, had the fastest response time in the country, often, that's a verified fact, uh, and had very high arrest rates, very low crime, because we all worked together and cared about each other as a team. So I think you're spot on with this, as they say. Uh, give us some ideas on, on how we kind of break this down. You know, how do, we, how do we kind of quantify this, break it down into like the parts here, that we would, the steps we would take? Those questions individual we can ask you. The who's, the what's, the where's, the when's, the how's, and the why's. And, and I touched on this a little bit in, in the article to say, you know, who am I looking at? Uh, and are they behaving differently? And that person that sat next to that colleague for those number of years, they're going to know who that person is. They're going to know what's going on, or they should know, perhaps, in their own personal lives. Something's different. What are they doing that's different? And that's about taking a step back, the OODA loop, orientating themselves, observing, deciding, and acting something's not quite right here. And then perhaps observing a bit for a bit more, bit more time, 
asking a few more inquisitive questions, a bit more investigatory. The what, what do I really expect them to do? You know, is that in line with how they are as a person, how they behave? Is that in line with the rules and expectations and the cultural norms of our team, group, organization? What was different about their action? And what can I do to help bring them back on track? And I'm going to come back to that comment. But the where, where did this take place? And do I think that situation, the circumstances, is that relevant to why potentially it might have taken place? There might be a reason why someone behaved differently or acted differently. We've all got so much going on in our lives. We don't always know what's going on in the background, particularly with this virtual world we live in now. We can put on any mask we like when we work day in, day out, and we make a Teams meeting or a Zooms meeting or whatever it is, the you know, the tool that we're using for a virtual communication. But as soon as we go off screen, we're back to our own lives, our own stresses, our own worries and pains and problems. And we, particularly from a leadership position, we don't know what's going on for everybody. So perhaps we do need to ask that where question, think, okay, what is going on? What did I expect to happen? And where is it taking place? The when similar, when did it happen? You know, did I think that that time and that place would have influenced the behaviors and the choices of that individual? Why did they behave this way? And there's a bit more of an opportunity for some more questioning. Was it appropriate? And if it wasn't appropriate, what do I need to do? Well, and this is not just from a security perspective, but it's about getting every single member of our workforce through cultural interventions, through training, to understand their own responsibilities, to care more for each other and for an organization, and to say, okay, something's not right here. And it's my responsibility as an employee, as well as the security practitioner's responsibility, to say, okay, something's not right here, it's not safe. If it's not safe, it's putting themselves or others at risk or it's harming the assets or the, the organization on a reputational scale, potentially need to make a phone call and, and call that in. But actually, if they get in early enough, my argument, I think the theme for this article is to say, we can stop things from cascading if we just take the time to notice each other, each other and to ask those questions early on, to step in and to care for each other and to help get those employees back on track before whatever it is that's starting to take place, picks up pace and things do go wrong. How do we avoid turning the lens upon ourselves and not approaching our fellow security practitioner or partner uh, from a perspective of suspicion and assessment and concern? I think we have to change the tone and the volume a little bit. How do we do that? That's a great question, and You're absolutely right. And there are, there are two approaches to this. One's a shorter term, one's a longer term. Security practitioners, we're always going to be associated with uh, compliance to a certain extent. And as soon as we start to have those deep conversations with people and ask them some questions about attention about their role, that you know their, their alarm bells go off. They start worrying that they've done something wrong, they're in trouble. And that's not what we're talking about here. We're trying to be proactive. And I think the short term is about our own soft skills, the development of actually coming saying, Don't worry, it's okay. You know, we're just trying to find out what's going on and engage, how we can support you. And that the use of semantics about making it supportive rather than accusatory or or, or investigatory rather than inquisitive. So we can really touch on, and that's specific to the, to the individual, their own communication preferences, their own communication styles. But we really are using our soft skills and our way of building rapport, building those relationships with individuals uh, in the appropriate way at the appropriate time and delivered in the appropriate manner. Then we can really improve the success of our communications one-to-one -to, -one to really mitigate you know, that alarm system kicking off for the person we're speaking to so they shut down and, and they stop us right at the beginning so we can't engage with them in this process. But I think crucially it's long-term. 
this is about security cultural change and organizational change building those deeper connections across the group for everybody to take responsibility not only for threat assessment or threat identification rather than assessment we use these buzzwords like risk-based decision making now across business but actually there's some there's you know there's something really uh, accurate about that if we can engage with our employees across the workforce to say this is what that actually means uh, you need to identify threats as well as the security practitioners because you see things all the time. You'll see things that are out of place in your workplace, something that's missing, a door that's left open. Are you asking people why they're not wearing ID badges, something you haven't seen before? All of those security hygiene factors. But actually now we're taking this across the workforce to say, what's, what's, what's going on for that person sat next to you? You know them better than anybody else. So you as an employee become our first line of defense, not only against malicious actors internally, but also the first line of defense for that employee that sat next to you by caring for them. So the way that we encourage that, I think, and, and build up the pace in that is about education and that security culture awareness and that growth and positive development of a security culture, whereby the whole organization, be that public or private sector, actually, everybody takes responsibility and recognizes their own uh, contributions, their own influence in developing that culture. And it's not just about us, as you say, as a security practitioner to do that. We can't do it alone because cultural change is such an intrinsic thing that needs to take place inside every individual located across the workforce. We can change the security workforce, you know, every single day of the week, but actually our impact is always going to be limited by the amount of buy-in and support we get from the employees we're there to protect. Mr. Paul Wood, thanks so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, your friend, and uh, really appreciate your insights. This is this is the new direction we have to go in this business to to be more effective, no doubt about it. Thanks, Chuck, and thank you for your time.